Welcome to Refugee Radio. This is the Refugee Radio Show on Radio Reverb 97.2 FM. In our programme, we talk to refugees and asylum seekers about their lives in order to ensure that their voices are heard and in the hope that the host population in their new communities can come to know them as individual human beings rather than just as stereotypes or statistics. In the show today, we have an interview by Alex Evangelou with the Iranian author Nazrin Parvaz. Nazrin was born in Tehran, where she became a women's and civil rights activist, which led her into conflict with the new regime. Nazrin was arrested, tortured and sentenced to death. She eventually escaped from her situation and fled the country as a refugee. Nazrin wrote about her experiences in prison in her memoir, One Woman's Struggle in Iran. It was first published in Farsi in 2002. A summary of her memoir was published by the Feminist Review in 2003 and it was published in Italian in 2006. She has also published another work entitled Temptation, which is based on the true stories of the men who survived the massacre of Iranian prisoners in 1988. Nazrin has given talks on human rights violations around the world in Canada, Sweden, the UK and Italy. She's spoken at the Edinburgh International Book Festival, the Ledbury Poetry Festival and Eloquent Protest, and for organisations such as Amnesty International and the Medical Foundation, also known as Freedom From Torture. Nazrin won the Women's World Award in 2003, was longlisted for the Bristol Short Story Prize and shortlisted for the Asham Award. Her prison memoir, One Woman's Struggle in Iran, is published by the Victoriana Press and is available from Amazon and Waterstones. My name is Nasrin Parvaz and I'm 64 years old. I was born in, in Iran, in Tehran. I grew up in um, eastern part of Tehran and it was a poor area at the time. We didn't have any facilities for children in our neighborhood. So we, I mean, children played in the street. Girls and boys could play together then, but now it's uh, forbidden. And uh, I mean, it's forbidden in public. And girls have to cover their hair. It's terrible. My other memories. <laughs> Women were free to choose what they wanted to wear. There was no dress code. Men and women could go out without facing any harassment by the so-called moral police, you know that the Islamic regime established. 
However, I'm talking about Tehran and a few big towns. Otherwise, women were subjugated in small towns. There wasn't any political freedom, but there was um, personal freedom um, during Shah. When people toppled the Shah, the regime was trying to take away all this freedom and people were res resisting. For, for that, for the meantime, to say, oh, I, I didn't mean to wear this or that, you know. Anyway, um, later on, they put lots of pressure on women. And despite our fights, um, we had to cover, I mean, we had to wear a scarf. Um, but now, the young generation, I mean, women, uh, young women, they remove their, I mean, they're removing their uh, scarf in the street. And um, some of them are in prison. Some of the regime's agents, they attacked women, they splashed uh, acid on uh, women's faces. They, they hit women with different things, you know. When did you come in contact with the regime and their, you know, foot soldiers in a personal way? When they started to arrest, they, the situation became very difficult. Some of my friends were arrested and were executed. So in... Uh, 90, uh, early 1982, I had to leave my job because every time I was coming to Tehran, I was interrogated, you know? They would come up to the uh, buses or, or even um, and ask people to, come out, not everyone, they choose people. Even um, they would uh, stop taxis and um, for example, pick you um, from, ask you to come out of the uh, taxi and um, would interrogate you in the street asking you, where are you going? Where are you come from? Lots of questions. Once I remember I was in a taxi, they stopped the taxi and I knew they would, they might ask the passenger. And um, so, I hit the, the thing I had with me in the taxi. And um, they asked me to go out. I mean, the, uh, these were Islamic guards. And they interrogated me in the street. They searched me, my bag. And, and um, 
when they asked me to go out, they asked the uh, taxi driver to go. And I thought they're going. I mean, I thought that the taxi driver will go because there were other passengers. And um, I was very worried they might arrest me. And even if they don't arrest me, how can I go home now? And um, anyway, it took half an hour. They interrogated me in the street. And during that uh, half an hour, the taxi driver and the passengers stayed. And when the Islamic guard finished, I didn't know the taxi driver is, uh, is there. I just, I was looking around what to do. I was very worried. And I suddenly saw the taxi driver waving his hand, telling me, come here. And he drove um, towards me. And I couldn't thank them enough, you know. It was, uh, yeah, it was very moving. I mean, things like that. But anyway, I, I mean, I had to um, leave my work because it was dangerous to cross these borders they had made. And um, one day when I um, went to see a friend, he was arrested already and he was tortured and um, he gave gave uh, our meeting point to the to his um, interrogator. Refugee Radio Show on Radio Reverb 97.2 FM. You're listening to an interview recorded by Alex Evangelou with the Iranian author and memoirist Nazrin Parvaz. This is an edited extract of the full interview, which covers her whole life story and can be found on the Refugee Radio website. Nazrin Parvaz was arrested in 1982 for her political activism around women's rights and the trade union movement in Tehran. She was detained by the Revolutionary Guard, a notorious branch of the Iranian armed forces who police internal security for any deviance from their political views. Her charges brought with them the sentence of death. So, um, where were you arrested? In the street. And after you were arrested, where were you? Uh, did they take you to the police station? Yeah. No, no, not police station. I was taken to Joint Committee Interrogation Center, which was in the hands of uh, Islamic Guards Corps. They used bastinado, which involves hitting the sole of the feet. And 
they beat me until I was paralyzed. And it wasn't all. They gave me two times, they gave me electric shocks here behind uh, my neck, or I mean my head, mm, to force me to accept the confession, which I didn't. And uh, in some point, they bashed my head to the wall, which um, caused a tumor to grow. And um, made me epileptic. And the tumor was extracted in 2012. So in, in the Joint Committee Interrogation um, Center, was there a process of um, uh, that, that, that you went through or was it um, how long were you in there? Six months. And while I was there for six months, my parents were going to different uh, prison asking uh, if I was there. And they were told that uh, I'm not there. When, um, when did you get in contact with your parents again? Six months after I was arrested. Were there other prisoners um, around at that point? Uh, the Joint Committee Integration was full. It was, there were so many uh, prisoners that they used the corridor. Actually, I have a painting about that. Um, I mean, I was in, in the corridor for a month uh, with the blindfold. Imagine 24 hours a day, uh, we had to be with blindfold uh, because they, don't, they didn't want us to see each other and to see the prisoners who were uh, taken from their cell to the um, bathroom. So, um, yeah, it, it was uh, full. And some prisoners died under torture. Some prisoners um, committed suicide after uh, being under torture uh, for so long, you know. Um, that they couldn't take it anymore. So they committed uh, suicide and some of them were saved and put on the torture again. Um, in, in, in the corridor, were you able to um, communicate in any form with other prisoners? Uh, we were not allowed. And 
the first, uh, but a person is used to, um, to talk a bit, you know, um, um, during, uh, uh, for example, the night or something like that. Um, but I remember the first week of my arrest uh, because of the beating, I was so um, tired, or I don't know, that um, I was asleep day and night. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, I woke up, you know, sometimes and I heard something some persons whispered something to each other. And then I went back to sleep. I mean, it was, I don't know, it was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. And um, within the prison, um, what, were, um, what were the guards like? Can you tell me about the guards? Um, they were doing their job, <laughs> which was, they were harsh, you know, they, um, I don't know about now, but then they were very, um, how do you put it? Um, they believed in, in the regime and because the regime was saying it's a state of God, you know, and they believed it, they, they loved Khomeini and, and they, some of them would die for him. So, yeah, they hated us because they believed the regime hated us. Um, in, uh, were, were any of your friends in prison at this time or, or with you? Did you recognize anyone in prison? Um, yes, I, I'm actually, I didn't recognize her um, because I was still, uh, um, I mean, she was at the beginning of the wing and I was exactly at the end of the week. And I was very tired, sleeping all the time. And one day, someone kicked <laughs> my, my foot and I was woken up and it was painful. And <laughs> it was another prisoner. She didn't know that I was in pain. And, and she, she was waiting for the bathroom, you know? And she um, asked me, who brought you me? Who um, gave in your information, you know, brought you here? And, and um, she told me that Raz is uh, in the court. And I said, oh, Raz is arrested. I didn't know. And uh, she told me she was arrested uh, a day before me. And, uh, yeah, 
but then later on, I heard that um, um, some other friends were arrested. Yeah. Um, so what did they officially charge you with? Um, not believing in God, um, spying for Western governments, and fight against the state of God. Um, and uh, did, did these charges inform the type of um, treatment you got in prison and um, the type of punishments that you received? Yes, people uh, with these these charges uh, were um, sentenced to execution. And I was, but uh, my father could change it. My family could change it. Um, so when, when you got into contact with your parents, six months after um, you were arrested. Um, how, how did you feel at that time when you first talked to them after being arrested? Um, it was very emotional. And um, my father <laughs> asked me, did they beat you? And before I answer, I, I wouldn't tell him that I, they did because I knew um, him and uh, I mean, my family would be very upset. I wouldn't tell, tell him, yes, they did. But before I say anything, the, the, the phone was uh, cut off and uh, a guard came and said, uh, just talk about yourself. So my father understood that he cannot ask such questions. And I told him, don't worry, I'm okay. And, um, but uh, I had to prepare them that uh, I'm going to be executed. And I told them. And my father was, no, I'm, he was shocked. And he said, I'm not dead yet, so things like that. But that made him to go and, um, yeah, go from one office to another office, from this, yeah. And and when did um when did you find out that you were sentenced to execution? I, I knew because um, my friends were executed, and then I, I was transferred to the to Evie, um, which uh, we were going to have our court. Um, just uh, one or two minutes, uh, 
the court just took one or two minutes and uh, the judge asked, asked me just a few questions. And the final question was, would you um, confess to wrongdoing and um, would you, yeah, um, say you're Muslim, things like that? I said, no. And he said, okay, go. And I knew then that um, I'll be, I mean, the sentence will be execution. And yeah. Um, how did you manage to um, endure knowing that you had an um, execution sentence? Um, I wasn't the only one. And we all die one day. <laughs> um, and I didn't want to do something that I regret later. So I tried to live my life in prison. Um, um, can I say something? It wasn't only that time that I was waiting for execution, for my execution. Um, Later on, a few years later, in 1988, thousands of prisoners were executed. Um, they first uh, stopped um, our visit with our family. And um, then we heard that they have started to kill men prisoners. Um, then uh, one day, then they started to interrogate us, the women prisoners. And one day they took more than 50 prisoners from the wing I was in. And they never could come back. Later on, we heard they all were executed. Why did they um why did they pick those um, specific prisoners? Because um, they were a bit mujahideen. I mean, they were arrested uh, because of being. Uh, um, I mean, their charges was. Um, related to um, Mujahideen. Do you know Mujahideen? Yeah. Um, I've, I've, a Muslim yeah. organization. Um, but at that time, I, I know that some of the people, I mean, women, they killed. And if they killed, they these women were not uh, with Mujahideen. They didn't, they didn't believe in Mujahideen. And even 
their interrogators knew that they were not with Mujahideen. For example, Sara, uh, which was my friend, she was arrested with the accusation of being with Mujahideen, but she was changed in person. She, was, uh, she wasn't with uh, uh, Mujahideen at all anymore. She didn't pray. She was with us. And, um, and her interrogator knew that. Still, she was, uh, she was executed. Um, why did the regime um, uh, accelerate these executions in 1988? You know, uh, I remember that uh, one of the events, um, uh, what you call it, uh, Sorry, sometimes I forget the word. Um, the one who runs the prison, the chief, uh, what do you call it? Um, Warden. Yeah, one of the one of the Evans Warden. His name was um, Lajavardi. I remember a few times. Um, I mean, I was taken by force to the assembly hall and um, otherwise I, I wouldn't go, I mean. And um, Lajavardi said that we are not stupid to let you go. Um, during short times, there were a handful political prisoners. And he was stupid, let, let them to leave, to get released and make lots of parties. They are not stupid to let you go. And there were thousands of prisoners, you know? They didn't want anything happens and these thousands of people go outside and they could revolutionize Iran, you know? So they had planned to kill prisoners in advance. Then in 1988, um, when, the, when Mujahideen um, walked to Iran from Iraq, you know, with arms, things like that. Um, the regime found an excuse beside killing them, killing those Mujahideen who marched towards Iran. Beside that, uh, the regime started a massacre in prisons. Uh, for example, in uh, Evin and Gwagdash, uh, they first uh, executed Mujahideen men. Then they started with the atheists, different groups of, uh, I mean, uh, leftists. And they gave them the choice 
would you repent your beliefs, your struggle, and start praying? If they accepted, they were saved. If they didn't, they were um, they were um, passed in a tunnel of beating with um, table things like that, and then going to be um, executed. So, um, so many of them didn't accept it, um, accept, didn't accept the condition to stay alive and were tortured and executed. And in 1988, um, uh, were you involved? In, um, in 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 this um, new um, push of um, crackdowns in prisons, um, did they uh, um, interrogate you further? Yes, we all. After after you know, first they started with Mujahideen um, uh, men. Then they finished with them, killed them all. They started with the uh, leftist men. When they finished with them, you know, they started with Mujahideen women. When they finished with them, they started with us, but with us, it was just scaring us. Um, we knew they were, they had killed so many prisoners, we knew that. Um, and the regime wanted us to know because um, they were asking us, would you, I mean, we were in interrogated as well. They, um, they were asking us if we believe in God or uh, things like that. The same questions they asked their, um, I mean, uh, male uh, uh, leftists. And, um, I remember a scene. We all were, uh, I mean, they all, they gathered all of us in a hall. And the prison warden, who was someone else, it wasn't luxury anymore, um, took to us all and he, he threatened us gave us a choice, you know, to accept the condition or not. And it was funny. He said, those who accept, stay here. Those who doesn't accept, leave, go to their wing. And we started to go to our wing. I looked back, only one person <laughs> was was standing there, only one person. So, but it was uh, with us, it was only threatening us. At that time, they didn't kill the leftist women. I mean, 
before that, they killed so many, I mean, so many leftist women. But at that, uh, uh, I mean, at that time, they didn't kill us, uh, which we weren't many. We were under 200. And um, yeah. Um, so throughout your you know, prison experience, um, was it hard seeing other people um, confess for and um, for, for for like their crimes they hadn't necessarily committed? You know, I, I knew that is a forced confession, and I knew that they wouldn't confess if, um, I mean, by free choice. listening to an excerpt from an interview recorded in 2022 by Alex Evangelou for Refugee Radio with the Iranian activist and writer Nazrin Parvaz. According to the Human Rights Watch World Report of 2021, Iranian authorities continued to repress their own people until now. The country's security and intelligence apparatus, in partnership with the judiciary, harshly cracked down on dissent, including through excessive and lethal force against protesters, and reported abuse and torture in detention. The country has the death penalty and executes hundreds of people every year, including those for vaguely defined national security crimes such as enmity against God and sowing corruption on earth. According to Amnesty International, prisoners are tortured to extract fake confessions, which are then broadcast on state television. Leaked surveillance footage from Tehran's Even Prison in August last year showed prison officials beating, sexually harassing and otherwise torturing or ill-treating prisoners. At least 24 prisoners died in suspicious circumstances involving allegations of torture or other ill-treatment, including the denial of adequate medical care. The Iranian penal code still includes punishments such as flogging, blinding, amputation, crucifixion and stoning. And at what point did you um, get released from, um, from prison? And um, when, when, when was that and what was the conditions around that? Uh, in 1990, a group uh, from uh, UN came to investigate uh, Evie. And uh, our parents told us to talk to them. But uh, one morning when we went to uh, P 
pick up our teapot, we realized the regime had uh, made a wall across the long corridor and hid us behind that wall. And the wall, they made the wall overnight, you know? Anyway, they, um, uh, regime showed the prison to the human rights uh, group and um, he does, uh, I mean, behind the wall. Um, but, you know, it was after the massacre and our families were very scared that the regime would kill us too. At the same time, our families, and especially the families of those who were executed, um, talk to um, human rights organization, organizations uh, such as uh, Amnesty, and the news of massacre came out. So the regime had to release us. So yeah, we, we were less than 200 from, imagine all those 100,000 prisoners that were arrested at the beginning of 1980. In 1990, um, we were less than 200 who were released without uh, confessing, uh, without any condition. I mean, thousands were um, executed and I don't know, perhaps 100,000 were forced uh, to confess, to get released. So we were less than 200, women only. And after your release, um, what was the first thing that you did? <laughs> um, first thing. Okay, my sister took me to a hairdresser. <laughs> she touched my hair and said, Ugh, <laughs> what are you washing your hair with? <laughs> and my sister told her she just came out of prison. And the hairdresser was shocked. She was just shocked and she said, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was one of the first things that I did. Yeah. Um, and after your, after your release, um, did you return to live with your family in Tehran? 
Did I what? Did you return to live with your family in Tehran? Oh, yes. They came to pick me up from uh, prison. And uh, yeah, actually, it was the third time of human rights uh, um, group to uh, visit Devin. And my poor family had to wait all day because um, the, the prison warden, they didn't want um, the group, the human rights group, see me, see us. Um, so, yeah, it was night and I was uh, released. Um, so um, how did Iran changed um since being uh, in the prison and um when you had released uh, how had the outside world transformed oh it was changed a lot i remember once i went uh, i was uh, going somewhere and i stopped in a bus stop waiting for bus to come. And um, actually it was the first time I was taking, uh, I mean, using bus. And um, the man who was uh, standing beside me, before me, he said to me, he looked at me and then he said to me, women's queue is there. He, po he pointed at some place and said, women's queue is there. I looked at him. First, I couldn't believe what he was telling me. I said, what? I asked him, what are you talking about? He said, don't you know, men's queue and women's queue are separate. And women's queues are there. So I looked and I saw, yeah, two women were standing there. And I went and joined that queue. It was very upsetting, you know, because when I was arrested, <clears throat> it wasn't like that. And then um, the buses were, um, I mean, men and women uh, had separate section in the buses. Yeah. And, Many things were changed, but this can give you. Whenever uh, I was going out, the regime started following me. I mean, the regime's uh, agents very openly. It, it was. It wasn't at the beginning. I mean, I don't know if. They realize I'm, I'm active again, I don't know, but um, at some point they started to follow me and it was very difficult to, um, to escape. And um, so I had to be careful not to go to 
um, friends house who were not my friends from prison, you know, because it was natural that um, my um, prison friends, um, we saw each other, it was, it was normal, uh, but with other people, um, I had to be very careful. When did you realize that um, the regime was sending people to follow you? I did some things like um, when I was passing a window shop, I stopped and looking at the uh, goods, I um, used to try to see if that person who was following me uh, in the other street is still is coming and pass me again and what is he doing and uh, I realized yeah I was followed <laughs> but then a time came that when they saw they realized I don't care anymore they came to my face, showed me that they are following me. For example, once I wanted to make sure he was, <laughs> he was following me, I went to a um, shop. Uh, it was a grocery. And the man who was following me came to the shop, <laughs> picked up a um, potato, a big potato. And asked me, is, is it good? <laughs> I said, it's fine. <laughs> then I said to him, fuck off. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't say this. <laughs> it's recording. Um, you can, I don't know if you can, I don't mind if it's there. It's, that's, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. With me. Yeah, it's good, yeah. And yeah, it was like that. Yeah. Um... Oh yeah, I was going to ask how how do how did how does the experience you went through in nineteen ninety three compared to um, let's say if you were to arrive in the UK nowadays? Um, what what's your opinion of the um, UK asylum process today? It's very difficult, you know. There are um, some. Um, asylum seekers are in detention center, cent centers. Uh, the UK doesn't want uh, refugees. Uh, that's why they um, try to not let the, especially the boat uh, refugees, uh, asylum seekers, to enter the UK. They turn them round, pushing back them to the uh, sea. Doesn't matter if they die, which thousands were died. And I wonder what's the difference between shooting people, hanging them, like what the Iranian government 
our government does, what's the difference with, with turning the boats, pushing them back to the sea and let them die, killing them? I mean, the UK government is responsible for thousands of deaths in Mediterranean uh, Sea. I mean, yeah. Are there any um, final um, remarks or messages that you would like to to add that you would like people to hear, perhaps? Yeah, I would like to talk about the nationality and borders bill. The bill um, allows the government to set up uh, new detention facilities outside of the UK the people um, will be taken and locked up while their asylum claims are processed. Um, this offshore policy, like the Australian model, will result in child and sexual abuse and a considerable cost to the public purse. And, um, Part of the problem is that gender isn't listed as a reason for persecution in the Refugee Convention. And I would like to ask why it isn't. Um, while there are countries like Iran, where half the population, women, are living under sexual apartheid, one aspect of this law is that it wants asylum seekers to tell everything on their arrival. And if they add something later, the authorities won't accept. Women often don't talk about issues such as rape that they've suffered on their first interview or even last interview. I know Iranian women here who have their refugee status, who were raped in prison, but never talked about it in their asylum interviews. They were lucky that they came at the time that claiming refugee status uh, wasn't as difficult as now. Shame as well as uh, what their family or their community might think prevented them from revealing that, that aspect of what uh, had happened to them in prison. So the bill punishes, punishes traumatized women who aren't able to share their whole story when they first come to the UK. Many women need uh, mental health support, proper legal advice, and to feel it safe before they can open up about the violence and abuse they have fled. So the, the bill will, uh, would criminalize Ukrainians and other refugees for the way that they travel to safety. Um, when your life is in danger, you don't think of your choices, 
because you don't have it except using any way to save your life or prolong it another day. Um, that's why people try to cross the Mediterranean Sea. Mm, yeah, and I, as I said, the bill is against the Refugee Convention. And it's, um, overall, it's a racist bill. It will increase racism in our society and we will have more attacks on refugees. Offshoring refugees is an explicit racial policy. I hope people show their objection to the bill and ask their MPs to stand with Ukrainian refugees and all of those in need of safety. You have been listening to the Refugee Radio Show on Radio Reverb 97.2 FM. Today's programme featured Alex Evangelou in conversation with the Iranian author and memoirist Nazrin Parvaz. This is an edited extract of the full interview which covers her whole life story and can be found on our website along with many other interviews with refugees and asylum seekers at www.refugeeradio.org.uk And if you want to find out more about Nazrin you can visit her website at, which is nazrinparvaz.org Copies of her prison memoir entitled One Woman's Struggle in Iran are available at Amazon and from the publishers of Victorina Press. My thanks to Alex Evangelou for all of his work on this programme and to our friends at Exiled Writers Inc. And to you for listening. Don't touch that dial, as it were, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>